Welcome to Bible study, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Take a few moments and pray and then start our time. See what God has to say to us. Father, thanks for meeting with us tonight. We welcome you right here, Jesus. Uh, we've gathered in your name. And we ask that you would lead us, guide us. We ask that you would speak. We ask that we would have ears to hear. We pray, God, that this be a time of revelation, understanding, and that, Father, uh, we would respond to you tonight. We'd respond to your word. So have your way. I pray that we learn something. We grow. I pray, God, this would be a time where uh, maybe some old ideas would be set aside and some new ideas would uh, really take root. So have your way. Uh, we thank you. Thank you for teaching us tonight. We give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Reminder. Uh, for our podcast listeners, that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. Could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, let's open to the book of Acts. Acts 3.12. Acts 3.12. Feel free to use the Bibles that are located on the tables or your electronic versions, Acts 3.12. Now we're going to look at something tonight that I consider to be instructive. It's an instructive lesson on some practicalities uh, when it comes to doing the works of Jesus. So Acts 3.12, need a volunteer? Read that. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, this is after uh, it was uh, Peter that had been uh, walking with John, and they had run across a guy as they were entering into the temple at the beautiful gate. And he was a lame man that had been lame since birth. Uh, he's someone that they had passed probably many, many times. And this particular day, as they were passing him, uh, they uh, were used by God, to, and the guy was healed. Uh, they, he's a beggar, so he's begging for money, and y'all know the story. He looked at him, he said, look at us, and the beggar looked at him, and he's like, we don't have any silver or gold, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That's what we got. And so he got up, and the Bible said not only did he walk, but he was leaping around and kind of running around, making a spectacle, all right, which 
Okay, I can I can forgive that, right? I mean, the guy hadn't been walking ever. Now, it, it occurred to me last time I read this that um, that you know there's such a thing as atrophy, right? And if you don't use a limb, it atrophies, and then there's no muscle, really. Well, he had never used his limbs, and yet he was able to jump up and run around and leap on these legs that had never been used before. And so there was a miracle that took place there, not only the fact that he could walk, but the fact that he could actually walk. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? It's like they didn't work, right? And we knew they didn't work. I mean, he couldn't walk. But not only did they not work, but they were likely atrophied, and yet God did a creative miracle in that moment so that he was able to leap, jump around, and run around. All right, so, so there was a couple things that happened there. And the people that were there recognized that something really had happened because they all walked by that guy too. They all knew who he was. He wasn't a stranger. He wasn't somebody they'd never seen before. So they knew that this guy had been lame since birth. They knew that he had been at the gate since they had been going there. And here he was running around, jumping and leaping. So there's something really powerful about that. So the people responded to that. The people that were at the temple responded to that when they saw it. And, and so Peter saw them responding to it. They were responding to the miracle is what happened. And so he sees that, he, and he sees the opportunity to do something. And I want to encourage you. And this is what I, some of the stuff that I find instructive about this is that be a person that can see the opportunity. All right? Here's a bunch of people that were just going about their business. Here's a bunch of people that were going about their religious duty. Here's a bunch of people just going about whatever it is that they were doing at the temple that day, but they were there for a reason. And God broke into the humdrum. And this miracle took place, and every one of them that had responded took note that God had done a miracle. They had done something. And so in the Bible, it talks about uh, fallow ground or hardened ground. In in Hosea 10, I believe, there's a, a good passage about it. And And as you look at what the Bible calls that, it talks about how ground gets hardened when it's not used. And it just gets so hard that you can't plant anything. You can throw seeds on it, but they're not going to take root because the ground's too hard. It can be as hard as cement. Uh, I used to live down in Georgia, in northwestern Georgia, and it was hilly country, and, and the ground was made of, the, the main component of the ground was clay. And so in the summertime, it would be super hot. There wouldn't be a lot of rain, and that clay would turn so hard it'd be like cement. That's how hard the ground was. And uh, I remember one time I, I was uh, doing something stupid, I'm sure. But I fell, and my leg, my knee, went into the ground, at least partially. And it gave way some, but the edge of the clay caught my leg and peeled skin off the side of my leg in an avulsion. It was so hard and sharp where my leg went into the clay. That's how hard it was. I still have the scar. I can show you later. But the, the only reason I'm saying that is that ground can get really hard. It can just get really hard. 
And if you've never been around hard ground like that, and, and I know Tim's worked on farms or, or whatever, some of you have worked on farms, and understood and can understand that the ground can get really hard. That's why equipment's needed. You got you to gotta kind of churn that up, get it so that you can get something into it. And so the Bible describes the heart like that. Uh, and, and the idea is, is that every now and then our hearts need to be churned up or they get hardened. And when the heart is hard, it's hard to plant anything there. In fact, you can't. You can't take any root. Nothing takes root. What happens? It stays the same. And you think about, we, we call that a lot of things. You call it stagnation or whatever you want to call that. But you think about it in our lives, if we're going to have some kind of a living relationship with God, or we're going to experience the, the truth of an organic understanding of who God is in our lives, our hearts cannot be hard. And yet, if all we do is the same stuff all the time, if all we see is the same stuff all the time, if all we ever do is just go through the motions all the time, your, heart's gonna, your heart is going to get hardened. Because that's what happens. Because we're not really using it for anything. You think about like the idea of you got spiritual gifts. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts. Well, God's gifts and calling are without repentance. All right, so he never takes them away. Well, then why don't you operate in the same gifts? Well, people lose whatever it is they're losing, not because God takes anything away, but just because their heart, their heart gets hardened. And, and they don't use what they have. And the ground becomes so hard in them that it just, it, it doesn't matter. They could have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in them. And yet if the ground of their heart, the ground of their spirit, if the ground that's inside them is so hard that it's just stagnant, well, nothing's going to grow there. Nothing's going to happen there. We're not machines. And when living things cease to grow, when living things cease to, to have some kind of being about them, when they just stop, they die. And that's part of the problem with, you know, all these ideas, of, like mechanistic ideas of how things are done, is that things just die because we're not machines. We're organic, we're living, we're changing, we're growing, we're becoming. That's life. That's what life is. You know, I was just talking to somebody today, we were talking about medicine and idea about philosophy of how medicine is done. And... It's kind of a frustrating thing that we live in an age, and this happened long before I was born, but we live in an age where we've decided, it's like, well, medicine, well, we're going to make that a science. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Here's where the problem comes in. We're not machines. So if you make a doctor and, and you equate science with what? A mechanic? I, I don't think that equating us with machines is going to help us to heal and make us healthy because that's just not it's not the way we are we are organic we're living and you can't just replace a part necessarily and it's going to be the same you can't just treat one thing and then everything's going to be okay you know i know on a car you can do that it's like oh my my rear brakes are bad. Okay, I'll put some new pads on the rear brakes. Oh, it's fixed. Good. Cool. But it's a machine. Oh, 
I've got a hole in one of my hoses. It goes to my radiator. Oh, I'll replace the hose. Oh, perfect. Everything's good now. It works. You see, that's how machines work. But people aren't machines. And we all know that there's reasons why certain things happen. We all know that, uh, that there's reasons why we face certain difficulties physically. And, and so we, we need to look at people as being not just made up of pieces, but being a whole unit, that we're a person. And I'm not picking on doctors, nurses, or anybody else. All I'm saying is, is that those f- philosophical ideas that have come about over whatever time frame they've come about, I mean, all the good that's come out of that, awesome. But what have we lost? We've lost a humanity aspect of it. We've lost an organic aspect of it. And, and I think it, there, there needs to come a time where we regain that. Because if you think of yourself spiritually, you're not, you're not a machine. You can't just fix the one part. Because that one part of you that's messed up spiritually, well, there's a reason it's messed up spiritually. And it probably has something to do more with the whole than you think it does. And you can't just make one little adjustment and that's going to be the, the answer to everything that's wrong. Because a lot of times there's some heart issues that are going to have to be dealt with. And, and just taking looking at a symptom somewhere and saying, well, I'm going to fix this symptom, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual. I'm going to fix the symptom. Yeah, well, great. You treated the symptom. What caused it? And where is it coming from? And why does that matter? Well, it does matter. And so all of these things and, and kind of this idea is that we have to regain a certain art to living and healing and, and seeing ourselves as a whole instead of just the combination of a bunch of parts because we're a lot more than that. We're a whole lot more than that. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize that. It's important for us to pray that way. It's important for us to understand ourselves that way. It's important for us to pray healing over people that way and to speak into people's lives that way. I just believe that. And, and I believe that for far too long we've been seeing ourselves in some kind of a weird mechanistic way that is just not, not applicable to us as humans. Whether you're saying body, soul, or spirit. Because we're more than that. We're a lot more than that. And so Peter, as he's looking... He's seeing these people, and they responded to this miracle. And there's something in their hearts got softened, softened. Something in their hearts that, that they had been going through the motions, they're doing their religious duty, they had they'd been going to the temple, they are performing the works they're supposed to do, but man, there's a hardness that was about them when it came to the things of God. And so they're going about all this stuff, and in the middle of all of that, here's a guy that they had seen and they had known for years that couldn't walk, up leaping, dancing, running around, and, and just you know showing himself that God had healed him. And so this was a moment. This was a moment that Peter saw. He saw that this, this ground is broken up. 
there's some softness in this ground. I can start planting some seeds here. And he takes the opportunity to do that. And I suppose what I'm trying to get to is this, is that we've got to take the opportunities. When God opens up a door, when God provides the opportunity for us, we need to take it. And, and so Peter, what he's going to do here, he's going to sow some seed. He's got the seed of the gospel that he can sow because the ground had been broken up. And the, the words used here as it says that he answered them, well, they didn't ask a question, right? I mean, there's no question asked in this passage. And so when the Bible says that he answered them, that there's a, that phrase literally means is that he spoke powerfully to it, to the moment, to the opportunity. He took it, he saw it, and he addresses it. He spoke powerfully to it. Uh, there's another example. Jesus, uh, in Mark 11, 14, uh, there's a story about Jesus and a fig tree. And and Jesus, the, the fig tree appeared to have fruit on it. Jesus was hungry. And so he went over to the fig tree in order to eat, but the fig tree didn't have any fruit. Well, it wasn't the time for fruit. But he thought it might because uh, it had leaves on it or something. There was some reason why he went over there. So he went over there and didn't have any fruit on it. And the Bible tells us that because he was hungry, he looked at the tree and he answered it. Well, did the tree ask a question? Nope. No, he spoke powerfully to it, though. In that moment, in that situation, in that circumstance, he, he saw the opportunity and he spoke powerfully to it. What did he say to that fig tree? Huh? He cursed it. He cursed it. He spoke powerfully to it. And we know the next day in the story, they went by the same tree and it was dead. And what's funny about the tree being dead isn't that the tree's dead. It's the disciples' response to the tree being dead. They're very excited. It's like, hey, look at this tree. It's dead. Like, this is the tree. This is the same tree and it's dead. Like, they're all excited about it. Well, Jesus said, curse the tree. Day before, they all heard it. They all heard it. What does that tell you about their expectations? Well, yeah, or they didn't give it any thought, right? One or the other. And either way, they didn't think it was going to happen. And it's kind of interesting because they looked at it, they heard him say it, and yet they were amazed the next day. And that tells you something about their faith. That tells you something about their expectations. That tells you something about whether or not they believe words have meaning or not, especially the words of Jesus. And so they, they just got all excited the next day, of course, because they saw it. It actually died, which he said it was going to do. And a lesson was learned here. A lesson was learned. And for the centuries since, scholars, Bible scholars, have been trying to figure out what that lesson is. And they've been applying it to everything, except for literally what the obvious lesson of that was. Literally. There was one lesson in that that was super obvious. And the lesson was, you too, if you believe and don't doubt, you can curse the fig tree and it'll also die. Because words have meaning. And words spoken in faith accomplish things and they're not going to return void. The big lesson of that is have faith. And you too can see something like that. 
No one wants to hear that, though. And so they will make up stories about that. They've been making up stories about that for hundreds, thousands of years, if not thousands of years, about what that story could possibly mean. Except for Jesus said what it meant. Have faith. Have faith. Have faith. And you, too, can see that. That's the simple lesson. So Peter, having learned the lesson of the fig tree, maybe, sees his opportunity. Here's the opportunity. Here's the opportunity. Lame man gets up. He's running around, jumping around. Everybody sees it. They're amazed. They're excited. Whoa, look at this. The ground is softened in their hearts. Peter's like, I'm planting some seeds here. He sees the opportunity, and so he he speaks powerfully to it, just like he had seen Jesus do to the fig tree. So he speaks powerfully to it. And he asks this question when he addresses the crowd. He's like, why are you so surprised about this? What's surprising about this? And understand the context of that. The people, by definition, that were there, that saw that, that watched the lame man jumping around, leaping around, everything, the people that were standing there, they were so amazed by it and so surprised by it, they were the religious people of the day. They were the people that bothered to take a part of their day to go to the temple and do their religious duty. They were the people of faith. They were the people that had heard, okay, well, this is what God has, this is what God wants, so I'm going to go and I'm going to do it. And they had sacrificed their time, sacrificed whatever it is that they had as far as, uh, as, far as bringing a, a tribute or bringing some kind of sacrifice or whatever it was. They had brought what they were supposed to bring. They had done what they were supposed to do. These were the faithful. These were the faithful people. These were the religious people. These were the people that had that kind of a faith in order to be there at this time of day. I mean, that's where Peter and John were going, right? They were going to pray. They were going to worship. They were going to do what they were supposed to do. And so these were the people that were doing their thing. These weren't the people that were ignoring God. These weren't the people in rebellion against God. These weren't the people that were in disobedience against God, all the rest of that kind of stuff. These were the people at the temple. And so they're going about their religious duty, and this guy breaks into it, healed, running around, jumping around, making a spectacle of his healing, and I commend him for it. And they're surprised, and they're shocked, and they're amazed. And the question that Peter had for them, because he's going to address this right then, he's going to speak powerfully to this right then. The question he had was, what is so surprising about this? Because I'm going to tell you something. And this is Peter saying this. This is implied in the question. Miracles. Miracles should not be strange things to God's people. (laughs) Yeah. Miracles should not be strange things to God's people. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. You don't start from a premise, well, I don't see any miracles. Well, let's develop a theology that gets rid of miracles. That's the wrong way around. Let's actually look and see what the Bible has to say. Let's see how this is something that God does. 
Let's see how this is somehow God moves in the lives of his people through the lives of his people. Let's look at that. And let's remove the barriers that are in us because we're not seeing miracles. Let's figure out what we're doing, that what we're missing, what's going on in us while we're not seeing it. Let's not make something up about God about it. Let's not do that. Let's just not make something up about God, about dispensations or about time frames or about whatever it is you want to make up about that. Stop it. Stop it. Miracles, miracles should not be strange things to God's people. Israel, even in this day, has seen countless miracles over the years. You think about all of the miracles that Israel has seen multiplied, multiplied. Over their history and over who they were, they had seen countless miracles as a nation. Not only had they seen countless miracles as a nation over a period of their history, over the last three years, they saw Jesus. And Jesus was doing miracles. I mean, the dead was being raised. He was doing miracles. People were being healed. Blind were seeing. Deaf were hearing. The mute were talking. I mean, Lazarus had been raised from the dead not too far from where they were. <coughs> you have a drink over there? Thanks. And so that miracle that Jesus did with Lazarus was known, was known <coughs> in Jerusalem. And this is what we're talking about. So I look at John 14 and verse 12. <coughs> John 14, 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am one to the Father. All right, so what's Jesus, what expectation is Jesus setting there in John 14? Right? Then why do we need to make stuff up about why we're not doing stuff that Jesus did? You follow what I'm saying? Why are we going to make that up? Why are we going to make that God's fault? Why are we going to make that the apostles' fault? Why are we going to make that New Testament writer's fault? Why are we going to make that the just time itself? Why is it time's fault? Why would we want to do that? Why? Why do you blame other things? So that you don't have to? Blame yourself. <laughs> right. Right. And that's really the answer. It's like, well, Jesus said, you've seen the miracles I've done. You'll do even greater. And whether you want to define that as more or bigger, that's up to you. I don't care. I'll take either. Okay? I'll take either. But I want to do the works of Jesus. He set us here, even philosophically. He set us here, he calls us his body, right? Well, what does his body do? His body does the stuff he wants it to do. That's what the brain works for, right? The head tells the body what to do. And the body carries that out on behalf of the brain. 
In other words, your brain says, clap your hands. Well, then your hands come together in a forceful fashion, and it makes a noise, and you clap your hands. The body carries out the orders of the head. So it works. You're going to get up and walk. Your body carries that out. Whatever it is you're telling your body to do, the head tells the body to do, that's what the body does. Well, philosophically, that's who we are. So it makes sense that Jesus said, you've seen the works that I've done. You've seen the things that I've done. You're going to do those and even greater because that just makes sense. That makes sense. And so he goes, he empowers the church on the day of Pentecost. He's like, all right, here's the power. Here's the same Holy Spirit that had anointed me. I'm going to anoint you with. Now get to work. So the issue isn't him. The issue isn't his word. The issue isn't what he's told us. The issue isn't anything to do with that. The issue comes down to us. Taking seriously that Jesus' words do have meaning. And what he said is that this is who you are. This is who I am. And so this crowd was witnessing that. They were witnessing that Jesus had done miracles in Jerusalem. Jesus had done miracles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus had done miracles everywhere that he went. And there were healings on top of healings that Jesus had done. And so here in Acts chapter 3, what they're seeing is, is that his body is now in action. Yeah. That Peter spoke healing over this beggar, this lame beggar, and he was healed and made whole miraculously and instantaneously. Well, Jesus said that's what's going to happen. Jesus said that's what's going to happen through us. And so he, in a sense, rebukes the people, the religious people, the people of faith that are standing there. He's like, why does this seem strange to you? You've seen miracles as a nation since your very inception. Not only have you seen miracles as a nation since your very inception, the prophets had performed miracles. Not only have the prophets performed miracles, you've seen miracles through the hands of Jesus just taking place over the last three years. Why is this shocking? Why is this shocking? And so what he did was, because they were all amazed. Who were they amazed with? Him. But the real issue was, is that it wasn't him. It was all about Jesus. And so he takes a moment here and he refocuses everything onto Jesus. And he asked this question. After he asked the question, what's so surprising about this? That was the first rebuke. Second thing he said to him is like, why are you staring at us? Why? Why are you staring at us? We didn't make this man walk by the power of our own godliness. Why are you staring at us? He's like, we didn't make this man walk by our own power or our own authority. 
That wasn't, and he tells him that flat out. He refocuses on Jesus. But what he is actually confronting, and, and if you can hear me, hear me. If you can't, I understand. But what he's actually confronting is the popular theory of miracles. That's what he's confronting. And the popular theory of miracles says, if a person is devout enough, God will hear him. That's the popular theory of miracles. That miracles, in order to do miracles, it comes down to being the right person. What does that mean? Well, not you. Okay, that's all. And and every Christian has in their back pocket, well, Jesus did this, this, and this. Yeah, but he was Jesus. That's in their back pocket. Every Christian has that in their back pocket. In other words, it's an excuse. Well, yeah, well, I'm not doing that. Or, or what about the, the works that uh, you know Peter did? Oh, yeah, well, he's Peter. He's one of the apostles. He's special. He's more devout than me. He's holier than me. Or name anybody. And what it comes right down to is it's just not you, right? It's like, how, how can that person do that? Why aren't you doing that? Because I see that person doing that. Well, that's not me. Well, you don't say it that way. You just make up something. Well, they're closer to God, or they've got a direct line to God, or they're, they got more authority, or they got this, they got that. And it's always something that's not you. And so it's an excuse not to get to the work. It's an excuse not to get to the work. And so the popular theory of miracles is that, well, if you're good enough, if you're devout enough, well, God will do that stuff for you. And I guess I just want to say no one is that good enough. And no one is that devout. Because it doesn't work that way. That's not how miracles work. Miracles have more to do with God and a willing vessel. That's all. And when I was talking before about, you know, fixing whatever's in you, because God wants to do what he wants to do. And he's already proclaimed he's going to do that. He's already said, I'm going to do that to the people I was going to do that through and all the rest of those kind of things. He's already said that. So what's stopping it? Where's the responsibility? The responsibility's in us. But it's not what you think. It's not, oh, I got to get more holy. Or I got I to get more righteous. Or, or I got to whatever you got to. The, the real issue comes down to is a willingness, a willingness for God to use you. Are you willing to be embarrassed? Are you? Are you willing to put yourself on the line where people might think you're crazy? Are you willing to just step up in faith and, and proclaim something or say something? without having any proof of it whatsoever, but just believing God that that's what he told you to do? Are you willing? Are you just willing to let God use you? And that's really the work that has to be done in us, is a willingness. I mean, 
You think about these guys. I mean, Peter, he's looking at this blind, this, excuse me, this lame beggar. And he says, I don't have any silver or gold, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Well, he grabbed him by the wrist and he pulled him up. What would happen if he just fell on his face? What would have happened? Maybe. Probably. Probably people would just laughed at him. And you got that poor lame guy. He's no more lame, but he might have a broken nose. I don't know. I have no idea. And, and what could have happened, might have happened, or whatever. And you can look at that and you say, well, uh, you know, they said the name of Jesus and it didn't happen. Well, what, what's going to happen now? What is going to happen now? You know what's happening? Nothing. You know what was happening before they did that? Nothing. What would have happened after that? Nothing. Doesn't matter. These people don't believe in Jesus anyway. These people could care less. They obviously don't care about the lame beggar, okay? They just don't care. They don't care about uh, Peter. They don't care about John. They don't care about any of those guys. They don't care about any of them. They care about themselves. And they're going about their duty. They're going about what they're supposed to do. They're just going about their business. And it doesn't matter. Except for that's not what happened. He said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy jumped up and started leaping around and walking. That's what happened. And then he looked at this crowd that formed around this guy, and he's like, i got to speak to this. I, I have got to, to really speak to this. I've got to address this opportunity. I have to speak powerfully to this moment. And that's what he does. It has nothing to do with purity. It has nothing to do with devotion. It has to do with willingness. That's what it has to do with. Kind of an interesting passage where Jesus is talking and he's at a judgment seat and people are coming up to him and he divides people. He's like, okay, you guys all good. You guys not so good. And the guys that he said not so good, they're like, Lord, Lord, did we not? And look at all the things that they did in the name of Jesus. They prophesied. Right? They did miracles, wonderful works. And Jesus looked at him and he's like, I never knew you depart from me, you who work iniquity. It's kind of an interesting passage of scripture because we don't have any reason to believe that there was anything satanic involved in that. We just have a bunch of people that were willing and God was using them in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the real lesson from that isn't so much that you know, God used them or God didn't use them in the gifts of the Holy Spirit because he did. The real lesson in that is you need to know God. You need to know God. And, and the only reason I'm bringing that up is that knowing God is like the key to everything we have and everything we are. And when I start talking about miracles and, and signs and wonders, if the, the popular theory of miracles was correct, those people would have never been doing miracles. They didn't even know God. That's like the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. They're casting demons out in the name of Jesus out of people. And it's working. We have no reason to believe it's not working because it is working until it didn't. And But it did work sometime before that. And it was working sometime before that. And I think somehow we've got to get it straight in our heads. It's like this isn't the hard part. 
The hard part isn't that God wants to use you in miracles. The hard part isn't that God wants to do the supernatural through you. The hard part isn't that he has an authority for you to walk in and you can see all of these things happen. That's not the hard part. That's the easy part. The real, where, where it actually meets up together and it matters, is us knowing him. Is us actually knowing him. Being willing to let God use you in whatever it is he wants to use you in, that's the easy part. That's the easy part. And I hope you can see how this is completely backwards to what you were probably taught. Right? Is this completely backwards? You got the people that don't know Jesus doing miracles? And so at the end he's like, yeah, you did all those things, but I don't even know you. Get away from me. See, that's completely backwards to most people. And yet, you see that all he's looking for is a willingness out of you. And most people sitting in this room, you all know him. You know him. And so the easy part should be something that you're already doing. The hard part is the part you already got. Now we got to get to the easy part somehow. Back to the easy part. The easy part is I'm willing and God, I want you to use me. And, and so... You know, whether it's those people and, and, and they're saying, I did all these wonderful things and Jesus is like, I don't even know you, but at least they were willing and God used them. Or the seven sons of Sceva, they were willing. God used them. People were delivered through those guys. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They were just following a formula. Is that in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches? Come out. They're willing to do that. God uses people who are willing. Willing. So let, let's get the hard part right. I'm not saying that. You need to get the hard part right. All I'm trying to do is remove some barriers, though. They keep you from letting God use you in the supernatural. Because there are barriers. They're just false barriers. They don't really exist. just exist in your head. And they hinder you from... God actually using you in the miraculous in people's lives around you. Well, God uses me in prophecy. Good. Well, he's got more stuff than that, right? I mean, it is the greater gifts. I understand that. And that's why we emphasize it, and that's why we teach it, and that's why we pray over people for it, and that's why it's a big part of who we are. But there's more, right? There, there's healings and, and there's miracles and, and there's tongues and interpretation of tongues and there's discerning of spirits and there's faith and, and there's all these other things, the word of wisdom, there's the word of knowledge, all these things that God still, he, he wants to use you in. He wants to use me in. You know, you look at, um, <clears throat> for example, Mark 16. Toward the end of Mark, and Jesus after the resurrection he looks at his disciples like, these signs will follow those that believe. And he gives no other, like, special thing on that. It's not these signs will follow those that believe and go to church four times a week. Or those that believe and pay their tithe on time. Or those that believe and take communion three times a month. Or those that believe and there's no other and. There's no and. There's no and. These signs will follow those who believe. And if you read the verses, you look there, it's like there's some miraculous stuff in there, right? There's the laying your hands on sick people and they shall recover. That kind of stuff. 
And you look at the signs that he says, I mean, they're miracle signs and wonders. That's what follows people who believe. Yeah. Doesn't say they're even disciples. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say they're disciples. Doesn't say that they're committed. Doesn't say that they doesn't give us any indication about how they're living. Doesn't say anything about it. It's like, these are the signs that just follow people that believe. You mean they don't have to gin that up somehow? Every time? Nope. They just follow them. You want to do something special about that? Nope. This is what just follows. This follows people that believe. This is what, it's the way it is. And I know we want to make it a bigger deal than that, but that's what it says. Let's look at a few more verses. First uh, Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Somebody want to read that? First Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. All right, so philosophically, do you understand what Paul says there? It's his choice. And he chooses to use who? Losers. <laughs> Utter losers. The despised, the forgotten, the uneducated, people that no one pays any attention to whatsoever. He even says he uses things that even aren't. I don't know how he does that. Don't care. See, but he, he didn't even have to exist. He can still do what he's going to do. It's part of his plan. It's part of how he does things. That's why the popular theory of miracles doesn't make any sense. He didn't choose the extraordinarily religious people. He didn't choose the theologians. He didn't choose the people that had the best educations. He didn't choose the people that looked the best, sounded the best, had the most money, were the most popular. That's not the that's not how he does things. He takes hold of things that no one cares about and people that no one pays attention to. And that's who he chooses to use. And it's in those signs and wonders and miracles that nullify all of the points of pride that the devil wants you to believe. Pride is the sin of the devil. And as soon as that gets into the church, we're all in trouble. The theory of miracles is a, a, is, is a Christian theory based in the sin of the devil. It's based in pride. And so I want to encourage you that that's just not how God does things. And and I know that's a long, three whole verses I, I had to read, and I know that's a long one, but if you can really get a hold of that, you can understand that, that that's how God does things right there. That's how he does things. And so if you understand that, you begin to understand it's like it's not so much about you. 
It's not so much about your spirituality. It's not so much about, uh, you know, whatever you think it's about. It's about Him and your willingness. And that's all. And so if you can leave behind the pride stuff, you can really take hold of the real stuff that matters. And I believe that's what God has. Somebody look at uh, 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians twelve nine. We got two more verses after this, or one more after this. Second Corinthians twelve nine. Each time he says, "My grace is all you need; my power works best in weakness." So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ can work through me. How's the power of Christ going to work through him? Did you get it? Did you hear that? It's in his weakness. Why? Because that's how God chooses to work. Oh, you've got a better idea. Okay. Well, good luck with that. He chooses to work that way. And so if he chooses to work that way, and if the power of God is going to be made manifest in you and through you, it's going to be according to the way he does things, not the way you think they should be done. Paul is like, yeah, I'll boast in my weakness if that means the power of God's going to flow through me more. And we know the power of God flowed through that man. We know that. We know that God wrought extraordinary miracles through him. We know that. Book of Acts describes it that way. Through what? Boasting in his weakness. Boasting in his weakness. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? I mean, you think about your weaknesses, right? Oh, man, I'm not really a very good checkers player. Why don't you heal somebody through me now? All right? <laughs> as silly as that sounds, it's a recognition that it's not about you. It's just a recognition it's not about you. It's about him. And it's just letting it be about him. Always. Always. <laughs> Always about him. Always. And let it be about him. And, and so whenever pride raises up, it's like, no, it's not about me. It's not about that. It's about him. It has nothing to do with it. The foolish things of the world, the despised things of the world, the forgotten things of the world, the things the world could care less about. That's what, yeah, that's what he chooses to use. Weakness. It's completely backwards. It's completely backwards to the popular theory of miracles. It is. Well, let it be. Let it be completely backwards. If you can accept that, you're taking a step toward God using you. Last verse tonight. Second Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Yeah. So sufficiency, if you understand the word... Sufficiency is, well, what's enough? 
Well, what's enough isn't in you. You're not sufficient. He is. He is. And it's through recognizing that he is sufficient, it's through recognizing that your sufficiency is going to come through him that releases the power of God into your life. I can't do it. You're right, you can't. I'm, I'm not good enough. You're right, you're not. I'm not smart enough. You're not smart enough. I'm not holy enough. You're not holy enough. I'm not righteous enough. You're not righteous enough. Absolutely. Good. You're in a perfect spot for God to use you. That's the perfect spot. Despised, forgotten, the base things of this world. That's the perfect spot. There it is. So all I can do tonight is encourage it toward this. I mean, Peter could have taken this opportunity to build his own reputation, right? I mean, he's got the whole crowd. They all saw the miracle. And so he could have said, yep, that's me, Peter, right here. Did that. Did that. You can book me for revival services. Tent meetings. Or he could point it back to Jesus and just say, He did that. If you read the rest of it, it's really awesome. Peter looks at these people. <laughs> He's like, Well, Jesus did this. You all killed him, but he did this. Yeah, if you read the rest of this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Way to go. But he takes the opportunity and he speaks powerfully to the opportunity to talk about Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus tonight. I want you to have a little conversation in your head about Jesus tonight. Not about you, about him. And take this opportunity to just kind of Come to peace with you're not good enough. You're not holy enough. You're not righteous enough. Just come to peace with that. And just let it be about him. Because I I firmly believe, and I'm praying that during this prayer emphasis time, you really get a hold of God using you and God doing some miracles through you. But it's going to start with him. And you just being willing. That's all. That's all. You're not going to gin it up. You're not going to make it happen. You're not going to be good enough. Ever. Let him do what he wants through your life. I mean, really. I just believe there's some miracles he wants to do. I believe there's some people he wants to heal. I believe there's some lives that need to be changed just because you did what he told you to do. Just because you made yourself available. Thank you, God.
Thank you, Lord. Yeah, so Jesus, this is about you tonight. I made some strong statements that as people listen to this, there's going to be a certain segment of people that are going to be completely offended by some of the stuff I said tonight. And so be it. If that's what they choose. Because tonight I pray that you would set the rest of us free. And I mean really set us free from trying to be something that we're not. Or trying to measure up to something that makes no sense for us to try to measure up to. Thank you that your statements about who we are really have to do with you. They really have to do with the work that you've done. They really have to do with the provision that you've made. They really have to do with a relationship that we have in you that you have really opened the door for. And so within us, there's no sufficiency. We're, we're not sufficient. We're not enough. That within us, there's nothing that's going to accomplish what you have for us to accomplish. There's nothing in us that's going to do what you have for us to do. And so I, I just pray that uh, we'll be willing to let you do what? Whatever you want. Whatever you want, Jesus. The simple things of this world, the base things of this world, the forgotten things of this world, the weak things of this world. Do what you want to do in us and through us. I pray you'd start something tonight. Start something tonight in this small group of people Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. God, I pray you'd change some people's minds. And I pray it would hold. Change of heart, a change of mind would hold in people tonight. And I ask you for something new. Something new. Give you thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's group by saying, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Good to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool. You mm -hmm. know, he's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of Chaplaincy of Syracuse University, 
UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.